Hello everyone, here's Beatrice Angotola and you're listening to Fashion Africana podcast and today I'm speaking with Cornelia. Hello. Hello. Cornelia, could you briefly introduce yourself to us? Yes. First of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be part of the Fashion Africana podcast. So who am I? Um, my name is Cornelia Lund and I'm an art theorist, media theorist and design theorist and curator. So that sounds like a lot, but as a combination, it works quite well. And as a curator, I'm also the co-director of Fluctuating Images, a platform for media art and design that was founded in 2004. And as a researcher and teacher, I've been like teaching for a long time, also in design theory, also at the moment together with Beatrice, which is a great pleasure. And I've been researching different topics, like in, in cinema studies and design theory, but also in media fields. Yeah, amazing. And I'm always inspired also by your work. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> yeah, so maybe you can let us know what we're working on together. Maybe you give us an insight about our course. Yeah, so the course is happening at the University of the Arts in, in Bremen in the design department. And it is about uh, deconstructing colonialism. So it's basically about post-colonial and decolonial approaches in the framework of design, so design theory, but also design practices. But we have a little bit of an enlarged view, so we also take into account what is happening maybe in the arts. And we try to have a, a look at the whole picture, which is a lot, a lot, a lot for a semester. But it's also meant to give the students ideas to see where they want to go on with their studies and, and their design work and practices. So we're also going to tackle the design teaching and the university as an institution, but as I said, also kind of really theoretical approaches and different practices. Yeah, and it's so always so uh, interesting, you know, because our students, um, they're out of um, design, fashion design, um, film, you know, so um, the backgrounds are, yeah, all different. And um, it's it's very inspiring also to hear their point of view and um, the discussions we have, because, yeah, I also think it's it's um, important to create new formats for universities, for institutions, and to create um, knowledge exchange and to give, um, yeah, also... Um, experiences more how would I say validation right because I think um, sometimes um, people who may have their um, knowledge by of course studying certain subjects and um, people who have an experience and background and if this is in combination I think yeah something great um, comes together and um, this is how um, I think also um, what might be um, 
the future when it comes to to knowledge sharing? What do you think? How how do you think um, will it take place in the future? Since um, we are growing closer together, social media is just on the forefront. We see online formats popping up. Or how would you? Um, yeah, please give us an insight about that. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully in the future, teaching and, and also research and work as a whole will happen very much as an exchange. Because for a very long time, academia has always been criticized as this like ivory tower. And, and I think academia is aware of the problems that this brings with it. But very often you still see even the art schools as a world apart, a world of their own. And also, as we are in, in a Western country, being in Germany is very Eurocentric and, and teaching in academia as a whole is Euro, mostly Eurocentric here and also Anglo-centric, as a lot of research nowadays is published in English and um, kind of has to follow the parameters that were established by US and UK academia. So there is a lot that has to be changed to have a really good working base and, and a good exchange. And I think this is extremely important that many people from very different fields are involved and also their perspectives are, as you said, validated because not only the perspectives that have been developed inside academia are valid for knowledge production and different practices in different fields. So I think kind of a fruitful exchange is very, very important. And this might be one, one of the very few positive side effects of the current COVID crisis that at the moment everybody is online. So everybody has basically the same position and even people in countries from where it is sometimes difficult to travel because of the visa questions and because flight tickets are expensive, they even might have an advantage because their internet connections are better than ours here in Germany. So um, that might foster uh, a better exchange and now it has become more natural to kind of have a, a physical event and you have some people who join the event online, which makes it much, much easier to have a good exchange yeah yeah absolutely and um what i also like about you know how you you work you know because you i find it very very interesting you know how you choose your themes and um also um whom you introduce to your students you know maybe you can give us an insight also how we met you know because what i really like about you 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 go to the people, you know, you, you, you mingle with the people, you really find out it's not that you're just, yeah, on one side, but I find it very interesting that you, you really tap into spaces to understand and also connect. Yes, I, I guess I was never very interested by a very well-established canon, what already makes me open for other approaches, getting to know other people. And I was always very much interested in, in the exchange between people 
who do the practical work, whatever that may be, like artists, designers, or more conceptual people, but in the in the practical field, and um, discourse. And so, how do I get to meet people? Let me describe how I met you. So, <laughs> we in the framework of fluctuating images, we had started uh, what was then a research project, and now has become more a uh, research framework, which is called Different by Design. This is the slogan we stole from Studebaker from the 1960s. And um, the starting point for this project or framework was basically that we realized that in the design field, you had a lot of approaches that want to change or, or even save the world, like social design, transformation design, and so on. And the problem is that design being a very western practice and eurocentric centric or western centric a lot of designers who start working have absolutely no knowledge about how to do design in other cultures or even if they need you coming from the west and doing design and it's very lovely that young people want to change the world but they should have more knowledge and ability to reflect on how to do that in a meaningful way. And so, for example, Africa as a continent, which it is, and it is not because it's a continent made of countries, as we know, Africa is one of the preferred objects to be saved, which we can also see in the aid industry. And a lot of designers go there very enthusiastically and do projects, and they don't even ask people in the countries or local people if they want to be saved or if their approach is meaningful and then they also ignore completely ignore the local knowledge very often and so this was kind of the starting point for the project and the concrete event was that I was planning a course for the University of Applied Arts in, in Hamburg and you did something in the framework of the Fashion Week in Berlin, and that's where I met you. And then I knew that you were based in Hamburg, and then I invited you to my class because I thought it was extremely important to integrate your view because it is nice when I, as a white European person, do decolonial discourse and try to decolonize. And it's very important that I also do that, but it's even more important to integrate perspectives that are not the white European perspectives, such as yours, for example. Yeah, great. And I remember I was also very honored when I received your invitation. I was like, okay, let me see where this is heading to. And um, yeah, this is also how I see it, that um, in combination, um, we can really create much more impact. And um, there's also what I always say, that the African perspective, um, it's it's there and it needs to be more um, recognized, acknowledged. And I thought, yeah, through fashion, it's a tool to communicate and um, it's something, you know, we can relate to since everyone is wearing clothes and um, what we uh, do on Fashion Africa now, yeah, we introduce contemporary designers and um, give them access, but on the same time, it's also an access point for um, people over here in Germany or in the West. And I think, yeah, this needs really to um, 
to be more uh, uh, linked up. And um, I mean, also in this current climate, you know, we're in the COVID-19 pan- uh, pandemic where we had the, or we are still in the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, have you seen a rise in media art reflecting these um, social issues? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, sometimes they reflect either on COVID or on the Black Lives Matter. So it was very funny that very early you had a lot of music videos dealing with with the corona crisis. That was kind of a funny and nice approach. And um, what I observed was that I mean, at the moment, it's very hard to see a lot of art, as in most countries, the art spaces are closed. So a lot of the art presentations are happening online, which um, changed the focus a little bit. So you have more lectures or online lecture performances and more articles being written. And there you have a a lot, a lot of reflection on and formats that tackle also the question of Black Lives Matter, sometimes in combination with COVID, for example, or sometimes alone. And I, I also see that, for example, I've, I follow a bit the, the Artnet blog, what they publish, and they really scrutinize uh, very much how the art scene in the US reacts to Black Lives Matter. And you have kind of initiatives that some galleries create a a lab space for the the African-American perspective, or then they really try to follow up that museums say, we want to support more people of color in our staff. And then they really scrutinize, have they done something after three months? So it's really also going beyond just saying. It's very much about also doing, which I find is very important because saying is always very easy. You say, oh yeah, we should integrate more people of color into our museum perspective. And then you say it and you post it and then you do nothing. And that I find very interesting that at the moment you see more people who want to do something and to really also follow up on what is done. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it's also what I uh, feel that, um, you know, it's easy to, yeah, to talk or just to to make a post or just to, you know, announce um, what institutions or media brands um, may do, but if you do not really see the results, you know, and um, this is, I think, what we're also somehow lacking in Germany, or do you have um, examples where you would say, okay, this is at least one or two um, you can uh, agree on, or would you rather say we really need to, yeah, improve to really integrate perspectives in established institutions, media brands? I mean, I think in Germany it is getting slightly better, but there is still a lot of work to be done. You have, for example, uh, Marit Efeoma Kuka, who is now a curator in Frankfurt at the Museum Curator for Fashion, which is uh, really a progress, if, if you will, 
but then she she's the only one also as a fashion curator who can integrate an afro perspective and i think that some institutions really have realized that they should do something and then there are others where it's still very problematic i mean think of this um summer exhibition at the university of the arts in berlin where students expose 50 posters dealing with their kind of really colonial and um, racist experiences and the framework of the university of the arts and this is the kind of most um prestigious international institution art institution we might have in germany and i was talking to someone lately and he said told me that he thinks that the university of the arts is really an institution at at the brink of of a scandal because it has become so bad and toxic inside the institution so that really something has to be done i mean it's not all institutions and probably not the whole university of the arts but it's the impression that you get from the outside at the moment and then i I think german institutions in general um have to change a lot because they're still very wide and they've very much work with tokenism. So they integrate one person of color and then they say, oh, look what we have done. And they're very proud and then that's it. But that does not represent the German population. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is also, um, yeah, what we need more spaces to really address this and um, to talk about it. Because sometimes I think, yeah, it's it's something, you know, um, institutions they have been doing forever, so they're used to it. And to get this shift to change at one point, to really um, look into what the society looks like and what does it need, actually. You know, if I look into the next generation, they're so bold and um, absolutely aware and uh, mindful and um, looking into um, sustainable solutions, also in terms of yeah, fashion, because we can't yeah we can't keep it up. And um, yeah, tokenism is is, is definitely something um, what should be more um, discussed and and addressed. And do you think we have um, also um, enough alternative um, concepts here in Germany that? Um, work towards that? Yeah, I think there are a lot of initiatives, for example, I mean, you you put them together also for our cause, like the decolonial initiatives you can find in Berlin, for example, and in in Hamburg. And okay, they all work with this decolonial buzzword, but I think you you need a label so people from the outside know what, what it is about and what it wants to achieve. And I think that there are really good initiatives and um, also possibilities, maybe not enough, but there are possibilities to exchange and spaces that open up for an exchange in the bigger cities. But I think that in the smaller cities, and Germany very much consists of a lot of smaller cities, there is not that much going on. And there is also... Uh, a lack of awareness, which does not mean that the population is not also very much mixed and does not only consist of 
white European people. So it would also be very, very necessary there. And of course, they people living in those places can participate in what's going on online, but that's not enough because the life you live, not at the moment maybe, but normally happens very much offline. So you also need spaces and um, concepts to deal with the daily reality, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hear you. And um, I mean, being an um, academic and, you know, understanding art, aesthetics and sounds from different cultures, you know, what are some of the distinctions that distinguish African art, aesthetics and sounds? Oh, wow. That's a, a very, very broad question. Just to give us an insight, because I know it's... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but since, you know, I know you have, you know, worked already for so long on, you know, music and you have been traveling to African countries and, you know, you have an inside and you... What I find very interesting on, on your work that you really, um, yeah, had the sense, you know, to pick the right artists. But, you know, you, you had a sense of, you know, this, I say also new global aesthetic, you know, and um, yeah, if you can. Okay, right. That makes yeah. it a little bit yeah. easier to answer. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe, maybe I can turn it a little bit round and um, talk about what... Um, I found so interesting about um, music production, but also art and design production in, in Africa when I came to work on it a, li a little bit more than I did before. So that was maybe like five, ten years ago. And um, this was that you had an, a younger generation that was taking up again the notions of um post-coloniality and, and taking up the notion of decolonizing in a sense that it wants to combine, but combine very naturally African traditions that have been sometimes forgotten during colonialism or suppressed, but they kind of want to get to know their own traditions. Maybe they already knew them, but some of them also didn't. So they are doing a lot of research about traditions but also about practices and, and techniques and um, more spiritual knowledge for example and they combine that with a let's call it a global sensibility and I find it interesting that this generation says we are global and we have been growing up with the knowledge about what's going on in the west and we also want to use that we don't want to cast it away and say that's not ours because in the meantime it has become ours so we want to use it but we want to combine it with African topics, African heritage or traditions and we also want to renew them because that was one of the problems of the colonial construct that Africa was kind of um, supposed to be an ahistorical place, like a traditional place where there was no development and tradition would always stay the same, which is, of course, nonsense. Tradition never stays the same. And so it, this is a, a very, very strong move to define 
a position of their own, a very strong position that combines all the, the influences and the knowledge they, they have and they find and they research. And that is very interesting. And it also creates, and it sounds a little bit maybe kind of not very sophisticated as a formulation, but it is a very fresh aesthetic. Yeah. Because also what, mm. what I hear very often also in South America that Europe is tired. And so it, it, it very much looks elsewhere, but then you have um, new aesthetical approaches that come out of this combination these yeah. younger generations practice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's actually a good wording, you know, because it's really fresh. And what we also, uh, um, or when we look into the fashion uh, industry, I mean, in the past, there hasn't been a collaboration with a luxury house and an African designer. Now we have Kenneth Ize collaborating with Karl Lagerfeld. You know, you have uh, an African creative director sitting right there at Louis Vuitton, Virgil Abloh, and creating yeah new aesthetics based on their backgrounds and um using um techniques and uh this is what i find very very interesting um where this is um heading to and and that um it's uh yeah it's it's something um i think we we, we will we are just at the beginning i also like to say since the african fashion movement it's it's young if you look into it, it's still a young movement and um, the fashion cities uh, are right there. And um, yeah, we will see how it goes along. And um, I mean, uh, we had also our exhibition last year. We did. <laughs> where, where we, you know, yeah, worked on connecting Afrofutures, fashion, hair and design. Um yeah, it was it was something. Maybe you can also let us know how we got together about it and um yeah, what it was about. Yeah, right. So, uh, as I remember it, it was basically you approaching me and and asking me if we wanted to do something together about fashion that was kind of clear as a subject and then you also came up with hair at a very, as a very central and, and interesting topic and nothing much had been done before about afro hair in germany and um people still know very little about it i, I could kind of realized that when I was showing music videos to my first year students last week. And I mean, the main topic in those videos was the, the Afro hair. And when I was asking them, they were talking about colors and like <laughs> very tiny details. And then I told them, yeah, but you know, it's about hair. And they were like, ah, oh, yeah, yes. But they didn't know that it can be a problem and about the complex history. So they just could not see it because they did not know about it. And very often you can only see what you know about. So um, that was, I think, very interesting also to combine fashion and hair because normally they also kind of form a unity. You always do your hair and you wear something. Very rarely you 
just do one without the other. Yeah. And I mean, the basic idea was to work together with a design museum, which in our case was the Kunstgewerbe Museum in Berlin, to show fashion and hairstyles from Africa or made by African designers of the different diasporas that usually are never shown in the design context because everything that's African is always relegated to the ethnological museum because yeah. this is how the colonial system has placed everything that's not Western. So in the colonial logic, it's not, not central. So this is um, part of the ethnographic research. And this was also a, a little bit of a revolution because as I remember it, that in, in the um, at the heart of the bigger institution, so the Staatliche Museen zu Berlin, that had to be discussed that it was the design museum and not the ethnological museum to do the exhibition. Yeah. But this is very important because otherwise design from an African perspective can never become part of the design discourse. It will always stay in this yeah. ethno corner where it does not belong at all. Absolutely. And this was also, when I started, I realized, wow, I need to really make it clear that I'm not speaking of ethno fashion. It's about contemporary African fashion. Yeah, journalists, they were not getting it and they were speaking of ethno fashion. And I then realized, wow, this is now also about educating the people. So it's not just introducing fashion designers to the German fashion landscape. It's also introducing the society, um, I mean, educating the, the, the society. What is it about? And um, yeah, so um, what you say, it's so true that um, it needs to be integrated and, and seen as something that is supposed to be there in a design museum. It has absolute the validation and the, the quality made in Africa. And um, I mean, yeah, what do you think um, needs to take that we see more um, African fashion designers in museum collections? Yeah, I think that it's basically also a problem of the knowledge of the curators and the people who, who buy the fashion because they grew up in an educational system where fashion was mostly like the big European fashion cities plus the US and Japan since the 80s. And now you have more research being done into how to decolonize fashion and how to change that hegemonic discourse and change this Western hegemony. And the big fashion cities are still very important, but you have a lot of fashion weeks all over the world and they claim their importance and they tend to get as important and big as the other fashion weeks, so the big ones, the established ones. And I think that this will change the discourse very much because when a, a curator or also a journalist realizes I was at this fashion week in Dakar and what I saw there was maybe even more interesting 
than what I see in Paris every year or twice a year because that that's not so inspiring or there's less freshness or less newness and then maybe that will also lead to an exchange that more designers are invited or bought by the collections. And then another problem is, of course, that a lot of museums, they, when they buy collections, they don't buy single new pieces. Very often they buy a big collection that a collector has put together. And very often those people started 20 years ago when it was very, very unusual to collect designers outside this established fashion circuit but that may change so you might like in 10 years you might have collections by design by designers or collectors who had another focus already and maybe they collect fashion from eastern european countries or fashion from african countries or from south american countries or from all over yeah yeah that's actually a good point that you're saying is because i just remember this uh french photographer um what is his name again i think uh, i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it right pigasi something yeah pigasi <laughs> i will need to look it up how to pronounce it right but anyway he's a, a french uh photographer and he started to collect art african art in the 90s and I read an article about him where he said yeah his friends back in the days they were actually laughing at him like what are you collecting I mean what is this you know it will not really be validated and uh, what are you spending your money with and um, yeah years years later he's one of the yeah few people here on this planet who really owns a major major collection And um, he had an exhibition with um, the Louis Vuitton um, Foundation. And I know, yeah, the collection is really so impressive. And um, but there we see also, um, again, um, what I find also what is missing that um, Africans themselves somehow also do not validate their own art and fashion and um, rather let it be with uh, Europeans or Americans because you can see most of the art is outside Africa and of course there's now a shift there's a young generation who realizes that um, this is us this is about our heritage and we should um, take a stand on it and we should be the ones um, to define it and to um, also benefit from it financially. Um, you had this shift now in the, in the past 10 years and from your point of view, how can you um, describe this um, shift from that now contemporary African art is validated and um, fashion is now on the international fashion landscape um yeah from your point of view yeah well i think that on the one hand the african art production or fashion production has become so 
impressive and it has also increased so it, it was getting harder and harder to overlook it that but that is just one point the other point is really that a, a younger generation also is working very hard on changing the discourse and of course it's not only the younger generation but there it is really very massive that younger people don't want to live that colonial or neo-colonial logics anymore that what we produce is less valuable and we have to imitate the west to be valuable and we have to function according to western parameters and in the western institutions so this is really a a big movement i would say of of people kind of trying to to liberate themselves and the discourses and their production from from this western perspective that is still very much also um the dominant perspective in many countries in africa in education and that is a problem that for example when education happens in english and in french you automatically somehow have parts of the the school system and the university system that comes with those languages and the teaching. And when you talk to people um, that, who are maybe like 30 years old or 35 years old, for example, in Senegal, they say, I know more about French history than I know about, you know, African history, because I was taught that at school, which is totally absurd because in Germany, of course, you learn about German history minus the German colonial history, which we should learn, we should learn much, yeah. much more about. So, um, so this is a part that you have those generations that try to find out how to validate their own cultural production. And then, and this is also very much discussed in the media at the moment, and this is also problematic because it has something to do with the West being so tired and not producing interesting stuff anymore. So there's always the danger that this is just a fashion at the moment. So, and this is a danger, for example, good galleries selling artwork have to be aware of and have to work on to protect also the artists they, they represent, for example, that they, that they don't end up just being a fashionable artist who can sell for three years, but that they create somehow together with curators, museums, people in academia, collectors and the public, uh, a sustainability for, for this. Mm cultural production and the same holds for the for the fashion system for example at the moment you see a lot of um, models of color and this is very important to make sure that this is not just for one year yeah. and then it changes because something else kind of uh, red redheads become fashionable again or kind of people standing on one foot or whatever um, and but this is also kind of the part of the work that has to be done by people who have a say in the field. You, for example, in, mm. in the fashion field, so that you always kind of tell people and have an awareness for what should happen and what shouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you also said something about that colonism has not been taught in school. And I think, yeah, this is also... 
uh, a very, very important um, aspect we need to look into, you know, that this changes and that we really um, educate um, the next generation with uh, how colonism really um, took place and, and that Germany also played a role because um, so many think um, Germany didn't really play a role in colonism. Absolutely, yeah. That's very important. And I mean that you can criticize what is coming from official sites, but at least it has started a little bit with exhibitions on German colonialism and so on. And you always can criticize the details. And I very d'accord with the criticism, but I yeah. think you can see that it has started that even very official institutions are aware of the need of a certain discourse and, and can't just kind of close their eyes anymore. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, this is right. And and yeah, the, the mindsets are important and, and the fact that uh, the demand is there and um, yeah, we can't close our eyes anymore. This, especially this year, really showed us and and yeah, thank God, social media. This is really um, what supports this whole um, dialogues and and gives really an insight and let us know um, how how um, it's it's really. I mean, we can see um, views straight away from Africa or South America and there's nothing you can hide anymore <laughs> absolutely well this is this is one good thing that came out of that very weird year yes yes but then i would just also like to point out something because you um you have been or you worked on uh an article called um, rusty stereotypes fake charity campaigns how fake charity campaigns try to make people think differently about migration. Please tell us um, about this. Yeah, that is basically about very, very funny short videos. Those <laughs> fake campaigns are extremely <laughs> funny. So it also comes a little bit out of that context of this different by design project because it, it, it tackles um, the reverse of those eight campaigns. And um, one very important moment was that um, a Swiss curator and, and researcher filmmaker, Thomas Borghalter, he also runs with other people the platform called Norian. He did um, a film about the fucking boys in Ghana. So, and they, they are musicians, but it was kind of, uh, it's called a trailer XXL. Now the film is already published, but it, what spurred like um, my work on that was the trailer. And there the fucking boys go to Accra and they collect money for the US because the US are so poor and people are really not doing well in the US. And they also will run out of, of oil and other material they need to sustain their economic system and Ghana is very very well off so um, they start to collect money and and it's also it's a spontaneous action so you see the reaction of like people and they are not faked and some of them are yes yeah 
oh yeah, that's true. We should collect money for them. They poo, they're living on the streets, you know. And but this is funny on the one side, but on the other side, it, it really shows how absurd those campaigns are. And then we we did a little bit more research, and there was this um very funny campaign from Denmark that was made during the so-called refugee crisis, which is called Adopt a Dane, because there were articles that kind of um, Danish elderly people wouldn't get their money anymore because it the refugees were so expensive. And then this <laughs> campaign basically says, well, in Europe, they don't care about their elderly people anyways. They put them in homes and they are poor and let's just adopt them in Africa. So it's a non-named African country and they adopt elderly people from Denmark with all the stereotypes. So then you see those happily laughing people, as you see them always in those eight campaigns when they got the money or got the food, you know. And so you see this, this elderly man, Ole, who had been adopted with kind of happy Africans around him. And then you see like the stereotypes stare you in the face. And this is so funny. And then there is this um, Norwegian Students Association and they, they do more campaigns. It's about the Norwegians. It's so cold in winter and we have to send them radiators. And they're really, really funny. <laughs> And I, I prepared the talk actually for the Nordic Film Festival in, in Lübeck. And then during the first week of the first lockdown this year, yeah. I kind of transformed it into an article. So that was also something good that came out of COVID. All right. Yeah, because I was also thinking, you know, how do you find tools, I mean, to communicate, you know, this this topic, such a these, yeah, because... Um, I can imagine for some, if they cannot really relate to it, it might be a little bit irritating. What is this about now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How was the response um, so far? I mean, it, it was very, like, at the conference in, in Lübeck, it was very good because it was already in a decolonial framework and and all the academics were super happy and said, oh yeah, I'm going to show that to my students. They're going to love it. And it's so good for teaching because it's, it's somehow didactical, but it's funny. Mm. And so it, it doesn't get annoying in, in its didactic um, yeah. purpose. And then actually online, it's read quite a lot on ResearchGate. There's a small article, but if people seem to be interested. So yeah, the response was quite fine. And also whenever I show some of those videos, response is very good because it's, it's easy, but they are clever. They're really yeah. clever and ironic. And this helps a lot, you know, kind of showing people. Because when you tell people, you know, the aid industry is really bad and we should, ha we should stop sending money to kind of so-called third world countries, sometimes it's hard to understand. But when you see it and just reverse it, yeah. people can understand much, much easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You flipped it. Eh? You just gave yeah. a different um, perspective on it. No, amazing. Great. That's why. Um, yeah. So so what inspires you for your work? And, and, you know, that would be so interesting for me to know. What inspires me for my work? This is mostly me 
being in contact with a lot of people also and and being in contact internationally with people and being interested in what they do and they show me their work and then I find interesting things so very often it's not really even that I'm looking for something very often it is that someone points me to something or kind of I, I stumble upon some work of people I know or even people I, I don't know and then I'm also always curious about getting to know new things I'm I don't really like being being stuck with things I already know I think that that's important and this all also sometimes a bit irritating for people I think because they think oh now I know what Cornelia is doing she's doing this and that and then they meet me a year later and then somewhere else but for me it's always very logical <laughs> yeah <laughs> great yeah because I know you you have a wide range I mean you have also interest into um turkey pop music right yeah and um i was like okay this is also for the next podcast to talk about <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah, we're about to come to an end and um what we always do on the podcast we have two key questions so the first one is what does fashion mean to you what does fashion mean to me so well there is a, a more general side to it. Of course, fashion is a, a, an important industry and is what, what people put on when they leave their flats or even when they stay inside. And I think that at the moment, fashion is very much at a turning point because at the moment, no one can say anymore that they don't know about the negative impact of the fashion industry, like economically and socially. So fashion has a lot to do with responsibility, if you can afford it, because there are always people in situations and they can't afford to ask, where does that thing come from or that T-shirt? But if you can somehow afford to think about what you're wearing and what fashion is about, I think it's, it's very much about responsibility so this is more the kind of general view and and i i'm interested in fashion and i like it when it becomes more political so like the fashion in terms of what h&m does also that, that has a negative political side of course because it's fast fashion but when it starts to change something and i think that's also why i became interested in what happens in, in African countries or in the diaspora at the moment, because it has a, has a societal and a political impact. And then for me personally, fashion is not about buying new clothes all the time, but it's also a little bit um, tells the history of, of my life. It started very early because my, my mum had kept her clothes from when she was a teenager and then when she was a twin and there was that lovely dress from the 50s with little pink roses and and I um, would play Sleeping Beauty with it and so that's how it started that I would wear my mum's clothes and spare, uh, and later when I was uh, an adult I would wear her like gorgeous clothes from the 70s <laughs> and so it's also always about about history personal history or history of other people and then my personal history a lot of my personal history of traveling because I like to get pieces 
that are a bit special from from other places and then whenever I wear them I, I remember where I bought them and kind of the conversation I had about it and so it, it reminds me also of of my kind of trajectory yeah all right and the second question is how do you define your role in this movement so with this movement, which one do you mean? Like the African fashion movement or which one? <laughs> this is a good one. Yeah, I would say um, the African fashion movement. Let's stick to this one. Okay. So my role is surely not a very central one like yours because I'm not a fashion designer and I'm, I'm not even in terms of theory really a fashion specialist so I came to work on, on fashion from African designers by working on music video and on what I saw in the, in the music video but I think my, my role can be also a little bit the one I, I maybe had in the exhibition we, we did together it, it can be the one of a, a communicator and someone who is um, spreading the word and trying to kind of facilitate also things where, wherever I can. And, and as I'm interested, I'm, I'm of course a kind of um, enthusiastic communicator because I also, I like it and, and that helps. It is not a academic position to like things but as a curator <laughs> I'm allowed to just like something and like to work with it and, and find it interesting and it will surely stay part or remain part of, of my work even though I'm probably not going to be like the famous fashion curator who does like the most important exhibitions but, but maybe that's also not necessary yeah all right Thank you for the insight. It was a pleasure. The pleasure was all mine. <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> yes, you're welcome. Wow. So for you out there, yeah, we are coming to an end and you were listening to Fashion Africa Now podcast. And I was speaking with Cornelia, who's um, yeah based in Germany between Berlin and uh Ravensburg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Great. Oh, I enjoyed it, my dear. Me too. <laughs> You're listening to Fashion Africana Podcast. We humbly ask you to respect our intellectual property. We want to leave you inspired, informed, educated, connected. This is who we are, Fashion Africana Podcast. Get in touch with us on fashionafricanow.com. <laughs>